Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. To be a successful actor or writer takes a lot of hard work. Even if you've had all the schooling and training in the world, there's no guarantee that you'll work at all. It's because of that uncertainty that all jobs in the entertainment business are considered extremely valuable. So when it comes to getting paid for putting your blood, sweat, and tears into a project, you want your fair share. Currently, both the actors and writers of some of our favorite TV shows and movies feel they're getting the short end of the profits. So they've gone on strike. That means the production engine of Hollywood has pretty much shut down. You'll have to wait to binge watch the highly anticipated season two of Name Your Favorite Show here. But it's not just folks in Hollywood or New York who are impacted. Our city has a growing film and television industry. How are they coping with the stoppage of work? We'll talk with local industry folks later this hour. But first, state lawmakers are now several hours into the special legislative session. We saw a day full of demonstrations yesterday, and then the House and Senate convened in the late afternoon to set their ground rules for the next few days. WPLN politics reporter Blaze Ganey was there for every twist and turn and is live with us now from the Capitol. And our own Rose Gilbert was there yesterday paying special attention to the experiences of Tennesseans who are showing up in mass to observe and to demonstrate. Rose and Blaze, thanks you both for being here. Welcome back to This is Nashville. Thanks Good for having here, Great to have you. Okay, so first, I want to hear the latest from the last couple of hours. Blaze, the House and Senate started business before 10 a.m. this morning. What proposals are they taking up? Yeah, so while the session is still expected to go rather fast, so far they've really just been getting all their ducks in a row. So this morning they assigned committees and scheduled uh, when those committees would meet. And it's expected they'll be working throughout the day to take up bills. Which bills will be brought up is sort of hard to tell, but one measure that directs the Department of Safety to provide free firearm locks to Tennessee residents, another that lets private schools adopt a handgun carry policy, are among a few that's on agendas and that's in the criminal justice subcommittee and they also have something that'll allow people to carry if they have an enhanced uh, firearms permit to carry guns on school campuses i would imagine that's similar to like a arming teachers bill okay blaze we know we've been expecting things to move quickly does that seem to be the case thus far yes actually by the latest indication it looks as if the senate and house could both be done on thursday uh they're schedule has their last uh, session meetings at noon and 2 p.m. So I'd be surprised if they don't, you know, rush through the next couple of days to get work done so that they can uh, end on Thursday. All right. So listeners, you may assume that Blaze works out of the Capitol many days out of the year, but WPLN has extra staffing there this week. Rose, your focus has been on the Tennesseans who are showing up to observe to ask legislators for action. What is it like out there on day one? Uh, you know, it was hot. It was pretty vibrant. Uh, you know, a, a lot of people who came out in March coming back again. Um, only about 200 people or so were allowed into the Capitol. Uh, we've heard some, uh, you know, of the law enforcement here say that was a limit. But last session, there were definitely more. Um, I did run into uh, one very uh, sweet 
confused Taurus family from California who did not know this was going on um, and got to kind of fill them in on Tennessee, the Tennessee political situation. But uh, yeah, over, overall, just a lot of um, a lot of the people who are here in March, including some students who got here after school yesterday and were uh, bummed not to be able to get in. But there's also kind of just a flurry of press conferences being held by a lot of different groups. You know, Moms Demand Action, Voices for State for Tennessee, um, Protect Kids Not Gun, um, the Guns, um, and the Covenant Families Action Fund, which uh, has been at the Capitol uh, kind of meeting with legislators and praying for uh, the, the months leading up to this as well. And um, after the House session ended last night, there uh, were some pro-gun advocates voicing their opinion at Representative Justin J. Pearson as well. I have the right to defend myself. We take care of our own here. You guys are lining up with the Communist Party to take guns away from us. So uh, as you can hear, there are a lot of different opinions on display at the Capitol yesterday and today. All right. In just the past hour, in the just this past hour, you heard from Moms Demand Action Tennessee, which is pushing for gun safety measures. What did they say? Yeah, so Moms Demand Action Tennessee has a local, is a local chapter of the National Gun Reform Group. It's been active for you know well over a decade here. Um, and today's uh, kind of event was really focused on physicians um, who you know deal with the mental and physical after effects of gun violence. Um, Dr. James McKenzie was one of the doctors who spoke. And an idea that's been brought up multiple times is that we could change the mental health system in a way that would curb gun deaths enough that we don't have to make any laws that are actually about guns. And I can't emphasize enough how unwelcome and unhelpful this change would be for mental health providers. Yeah, so McKenzie's particularly worried about one proposed bill, uh, which is designed to expand the use of involuntary commitment. Uh, he says it's a mistake to focus on kind of expanding the use of what he sees as a pretty uh, harsh intervention um, in the mental health system, um, as opposed to, you know, restricting access to guns. Uh, we also heard from a pediatrician who is a member of the Covenant Church and who's patients, you know, are, are largely made up of by Covenant students. And he says he lost two of his students at the Covenant school shooting and that a lot of the, the surviving patients that he treats are dealing with, you know, a lot of trauma. Um, you know, he's he's hearing from kids that they're dealing with, you know, flashbacks or, or, or triggers um, when they hear things like fireworks or construction noise. So that, that was the overall focus of that, that recent meeting. Now, Rose, you also spoke to gun safety advocates before this session. There were already a sense among some that they're not going to see the changes that they want. But tell us what sort of effort they've been putting into this. Yeah, I would, I would say the overall tone from most gun reform activists is like, OK, we don't think we're going to get a lot out of this session, but we're going to keep coming back. Um, I spoke to uh, Moms Demand Action before the session started, and they've been putting on a lot of groundwork in the more rural areas in Tennessee, um, going to small towns and meetings with folks and seeing kind of what, what folks outside of Nashville really want. Um, and they said that they were surprised by how many people were really interested in restricting access to certain kinds of firearms, like, you know, automatic rifles and whatnot. Um, and then on the other hand, like I said, the, this Covenant Families Action Fund, which is a nonprofit founded by uh, parents of survivors, um, you know, they they really have emphasized that they're nonpartisan, that they have Republican members, that they have gun owning members, um, and that they see gun reform as a, a common sense uh, by or should be a bipartisan effort. Um, and and they they were meeting with legislators and 
also leading um, a day of prayer every day of the uh, 40 days leading up to the special session. Now, these activists, they've drawn one type of reaction from lawmakers. Yesterday, as they started their business, they placed restrictions on them. Blaze, what rules are in place for the public? Yeah, so I'll, I'll list through a couple of them here. But uh, so 30 minutes prior to a floor session beginning, only people with capital IDs are allowed to have tunnel access. That tunnel takes you from Cordell Hall, where the committee rooms and legislative offices are, all the way up to the Capitol building. Um, that also, that rule holds for 30 minutes after a session ends as well. Um, also, they are no longer allowing members of the public to bring in signs before they could bring bring in eight and a half by 11 papers with statements on them. If you've seen pictures of the gallery during a session, you'd recognize what I'm talking about. Usually it'll say vote no on a specific bill or a clearer message like say no to guns or protect our kids things like that. Um, and then there's also just a heavy presence of state troopers. I caught them coming into work yesterday with bags filled with riot gear. That's things like a wooden baton, a gas mask, other types of shields and whatnot. Now, none of that has been used, but they have to bring it just in case things get out of hand. And at one point yesterday, there was a threat made by House Speaker Cameron Sexton to remove people who chant, um, essentially clearing the, the entire gallery so that the public would not be able to sit in and watch them conduct business. Um, you know, this isn't something new, but it seemed yesterday like they have a much shorter leash than in the past. The Covenant families have already responded to the no signs rule. They said they were disappointed at the limits on free speech. They also said that they, quote, lost a little bit of dignity and not being allowed to identify themselves as parents of survivors. Now, Blaze, you also heard energetic concerns from lawmakers themselves. What was it like as they debated even just these simple ground rules? Yeah, it was a lot of intensely, mostly from Nashville lawmakers, because these are mostly their constituents here. Um, and they feel that people who come here are taking time out of their day to be a witness to what lawmakers are doing and should be given a chance to state their opinion on things. Nashville Representative Jason Powell uh, was also very upset about Rule 83 that allows the speaker to silence lawmakers for speaking out of order or off topic for up to the full day and subsequent violations can lead to being silenced for the entire session. Uh, some law lawmakers felt it was, you know, a way around expelling lawmakers by just silencing them, although they would still be able to vote on issues. Um, Representative Pearson pointed out that Rule 60 could be a very big issue. It doesn't allow amendments to bills to be taken up unless they were turned in four hours ahead of time. Um, I asked for his take on the rules after session wrap this morning. I believe that's another attempt to silence the voices of our people by limiting the amount of time that we get to actually respond to the legislation that is happening that is and will be harmful to our state. And so what he means by that is just that when session starts at, say, 9 a.m., the latest amendments can be turned in is at 5 in the morning, which is likely before House clerks who would put in that those amendments are at work and ready to take those in. So exactly how quick they can file an amendment will really matter during this uh, special session. All right. Now, one of the most outspoken lawmakers, again, was Representative Justin J. Pearson of Men Memphis. He's one of the so-called Tennessee Three. He was expelled, now reelected. Rose, you were there as people rallied for his swearing in. What approach do you see him bringing to the session? Yeah, that was definitely one of the more celebratory moments from yesterday. It was kind of a party of chanting. There were drummers. Um, people were really excited for that event. Um, you know, I, I think I, I spoke to Pearson, um, or we spoke to Pearson briefly, and 
he, he said he's pretty fired up about the session. He felt uh, pretty, he, had, he expressed some pretty realistic thoughts about the chances of passing gun reform, but his perspective was that um, having people continue to show up, having the enthusiasm of people uh, pushing for reform despite what lawmakers may or may not be willing to pass uh, would be key going forward in, in kind of getting uh, better results than we saw or that than he saw last session. All right. Now, last question, Blaze. Just give us a simple snapshot of what's coming this afternoon. Yeah, so earlier I listed that the Civil Justice Committee will be meeting. I think, you know, now's the moment that everybody's been waiting on when they'll actually be able to hear lawmakers debate uh, several of these bills. Um, it's it's That's not the only committee that's up today. The Senate and House both have several. So, you know, today will be the day when you get to hear possibly expert testimony, public comments, and debate between lawmakers. All right, Blaze Ganey reports on state politics for WPLN, and Rose Gilbert is our general assignment reporter covering demonstrations at the Capitol this week. Thanks to you both for the hard work. Stay cool out there. All right, we have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll learn what's behind the writers and actors strikes and asks, are there any plot twists coming? What are your thoughts on the writers and actors strike? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Kaliole Kulona, and this is Nashville. Lovers of TV and film know that for months, members of the Writers Guild of America and Screen Actors Guild have been on strike. They also know that production on their favorite TV shows and highly anticipated movies has been put on hold. That affects everyone involved in production. Hair and makeup, location scouts, craft services, and production assistants are only a small handful of the many groups that come together to create TV shows and movies. That is a lot of people out of work. Last week, the Nashville SAG after local held a rally in support of the strike. We sent producer Elizabeth Burton there to check it out. SAG after strong! SAG after strong! A bunch of actors and musical theater kids chanting in a parking lot is the stuff of nightmares for most people, but not for our local SAG-AFTRA members. It's Tuesday, August 15th, the 106th day of the Writers Guild of America strike and the 30th day of the Screen Actors Guild strike. About 100 local union members and supporters are standing in the back lot of the Nashville SAG-AFTRA chapter building. The picket signs are just about the only shade we have. Some examples. SAG after on strike, living wage, no AI, SAG after a strong. Even though we're Music City, the actors are here to make their voices heard. Oh man, this is a good crowd. Way to show up. Way to show out, Nashville. That's Mike Montgomery, outgoing president of Nashville's SAG after local. Way to show out AFM. Way to show out IOXY. We got three unions here today. Welcome to the SAG AFTRA Nashville Concert for Solidarity! This is the first time in 60 years that both unions have decided to strike at the same time. And that speaks to how concerned they are about the current state of the industry. Dwight Turner says he hopes that the studios will negotiate. My actor side is here supporting SAG AFTRA 
because I feel that it's the right time. It is very important. And I do believe that with the combined WGA and SAG-AFTRA strike, that the studios will eventually have to come back to the table and they're going to need to make some good decisions. And if they can't make some good decisions, then they need to get some people who can. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, or AMPTP for short, has struggled to find common ground with the actors and the writers, but the crowd here is braving the heat to let them know the pressure's on. But it's not just industry people. There are leaders and elected officials here too. And there's a palpable shift in energy when Metro Council member and mayoral candidate Freddie O'Connell arrives. Seeing how much this strike matters to people in Nashville, we know that we have members right here on the ground in Nashville, uh, but we know this resonates across the entire country. We know that when people stand together, uh, they earn fair wages, good wages, and benefits that support working families, which we know- The issues at stake here are pretty serious, like better pay and job security in the face of AI. But there's also laughter and dancing, and it's pretty clear that the people here in Nashville are here to stick this thing out as long as they need to. Now, to help us get a better sense of why workers are striking and what they want, I'd like to introduce my next guests. Rod Blackhurst is a member of the Writers Guild of America and an own, the owner of Witchcraft Production Company. And Mike Montgomery is the outgoing president of the Nashville chapter of the Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, better known as SAG-AFTRA. Rod, Mike, thank you both for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Uh, thank you so much for having us. You said it best. Really great to have you both here. So we know that there's millions of fans of television and film, and they really don't quite understand why the writers and actors are on strike. I'd like to begin with both of you kind of briefly explaining the positions of your respective crafts. Mike, you first. Okay. Uh, well, what has happened to us is the pandemic started a cascade we, we all knew streaming was out there, okay? We streamed stuff, but it exploded during the pandemic when people were locked away in their houses and they started looking for, for anything they could watch to entertain themselves on television. Well, uh, then the business model began to change and, and uh, people said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. The motion pi picture producer said, we're just going to take our content and what we'll do with it then is... We're not showing it. At, we'll show it for two weeks in the movie theater because nobody's going to the movies and we'll send it straight to streaming. And they were doing the same thing with their television shows. Well, we won't run it on on regular tele rerun it on regular television again. We'll just send it straight to streaming. Well, we didn't have contracts that covered streaming. So all of a sudden, three years later, things that we would get paid for two and three and four times that would be on rerun on network television and then go to cable where we had coverage for all of our things on cable went straight to streaming and that entire level of residuals dropped out for the actors mm -hmm. so things you know, we were losing half our money so we we make now on a, a TV show, say like Abbott Elementary or something, I mean, these and these are the series regulars I'm talking about are making half the money that someone would make on a as a series regular five years ago, mm. and that is unsustainable in our industry. Our people can't live and work for that. So many people can't earn their health insurance now. We can't earn twenty six thousand dollars 
so they can make health insurance. And that's for the average working actor who does, you know, day player parts and stuff. All right. Thank you for explaining. Rod, can you tell us why the writers are on strike? Oh, man, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm not, you know, not a WGA spokesperson, but I'll do my best to talk about it from where I stand, where my peers stand is we're, we're fighting for um, better wages across the board. Um, uh, we're fighting for uh, more writers to be employed in television. We're fighting for less free work. We're fighting to make sure that AI and digital technology that's not created by a human being doesn't replace a real human being. We're fighting for access to those same numbers that Mike is talking about that can allow people to have longevity and to uh, pull the gun away from the back of their head during the rainy days. Um, and I think really writers are looking to be valued as integral parts of the creative process and not be dismissed by content forms. All right. Thank you both very much for those explanations. And you guys mentioned res residuals and they go they're the payments that go out to talent and crew after a project is rerun or reissued on a different medium. But how it works is really complicated and confusing for a lot of folks. But I know that they're very different from royalties, which are another form of payment. Can you, Mike, can you explain the difference of how royalties uh, and, and residuals work? Not really. Okay. <laughs> because that is how confusing it is. Actors don't make royalties very often. That's something that happens in the music world. However, I do get one royalty check for when the content that I make runs overseas. Mm -hmm. It comes in in the form of a royalty and not a residual. Okay. But I, the difference between that? No, I really can't delve into what the technical... I, I understand. Rod, is it equally confusing for writers? I mean, it's, it's certainly confusing, but I think the easiest way to to describe it to somebody who doesn't know what a writer, how a writer gets paid in that way is to say, well, there are gross profits and net profits, and a writer has been has negotiated percentages of those. Oftentimes the WGA has minimums, and there's minimums based on tiers. And those that money that comes in, you know, again, helps in the doldrums. However, it is subject to studio accounting, which often makes it look like nothing has been profitable. And now that those numbers are not visible uh, or known to a writer, they are more in the dark and writers are mm. not able to know at all what their work, what level of viewership or interest or engagement their work has garnered. And therefore, they don't even know if they're being uh, told the truth about the, what that residual pot looks like that they, they don't seem to be getting a lot of money of. So you guys are just essentially working in a little bit of a haze, not necessarily, you're working hard, pulling 12, 14 hour days I hear sometimes with writing, particularly on, on television shows, yet you're out here and you don't know how much money you could potentially make from the end of your efforts. And this isn't a new thing. I mean, there's this incredible ongoing tweet thread that the man who wrote Men in Black uh, updates once a year when he gets his residual statement from Sony. And he notes every year, it's an incredible thread, that he uh, he's yet to make any profit and that somehow Sony has managed to lose more money than they've ever made on Men in Black annually, still to this day. That's wild, because you could turn on any of these side cable shows on a weekend and see Men in Black running. That's so outside of a, a strike year, right, you, you hmm. begs the same question of like, well, again, I don't have access to these things, yet these are the, this is a, this is something that's making money based off my work. And oftentimes it's based off of speculative work when that writer put in the time and effort before they ever knew they were 
were going to get paid. They certainly didn't have a salary. They didn't have any of the protections that a studio position would afford them. Men in Black can't make its millions and millions of dollars without that writer's mm-hmm. idea and without IATSE and without SAG. Well, explain the difference between television shows and films because, you know, sometimes they have several writers. TV shows have a crew of writers, a writer's room, maybe 10 to 12 writers working on that. Sometimes a film has one, two, maybe three writers in that, in, in, in those situations. What's that What's that difference like? How is the money split up between people? This is a great question. So I've worked predominantly in film, motion pictures, uh, independent features. I, you know, struggled to get studio films made, not this year. Um, I don't know enough about the writer room breakdown, truly. I do know that it's a system of apprenticeship, largely, where you have these uh, showrunners and writers that are employing rooms of people that are working their way up and learning the system, learning the studio system, so that one day they could run their own show. And that is very much what the WGA is fighting for is that ecosystem to exist in a, in a viable, healthy way so that there can be more uh, future generations of strong writers out there. I don't know enough about how the pay works, but I do know that there are minimums that are being asked for and minimum periods of employment um, where writers can you know, continue to do what they do. Now, I'm interested, Mike, in the fixed rate that exists for actors. It's something known as scale. And here's yeah. just a real quick personal story. Years ago, when I was living in New Mexico, I took up some work as an act extra. Extras normally get paid $100 per mm-hmm. day. Coming back from lunch, they needed someone to say a line, one particular line on this television show that never made it to air. They picked me out of the crowd, sat me with a, a, a dialogue coach for about 20 minutes, and then I said the line. Then they moved me to refile my paperwork because I went from getting $100 to $1,000 just simply for one line. You're a principal performer. A principal performer. How does that change from someone who is a series regular as opposed to someone who is the star of the series? Well, if the star of the series, there is no scale for them. They negotiate way above scale. If they're a series regular, you are negotiating as a series regular, you will say, and you can, the, the, this varies also depending on the series and depending on the person and what their level of what their part is as a series regular. But say $7,000 per episode, they will negotiate uh, $7,000 per episode with a 10 episode guarantee. Mm. So that guaranteed you 70 grand for the year. And the way that worked then back in the old days is when they would get that for the initial performance, and then when that performance re-ran again on ABC, say, their network, you would make that again. And then when it went down to cable, if it found life to live on cable somewhere, then, of course, you would not make that much money. It would drop down considerably, but it would be based on the number of times it ran. So if it found a long life on cable and still runs somewhere, you're always going to be making a little money. Mm -hmm. You know, here, I, you're probably too young. The Ernest films here, Ernest. Oh, I remember Ernest. Okay, well, yeah. I was in Ernest Scared Stupid, and Ernest Goes to Jail. I got a residual check last week. Mm-hmm. And that was, I made those in the late 80s, one in 89 and one in 91. And if you land on something like that, that there's always demand for, you know, it can be, or, or you're in a TV show that finds life, uh, uh, like MASH or something like that, 
You know, you're on the gravy train. Yeah. It, it really works for that's how you make your living. In the past, I knew a gentleman who was a series regular on the hit TV show ER. Right. And, it, and that exactly. show ended a long time before I met him in 2008. Right. And he was telling me he doesn't mind working because at the end of the month, he gets a really hefty. Right. I have a, I have a friend that was a regular on ER yeah. as well. And, he and make it. you know, to piggyback on what Rob was saying, uh, and he was saying he didn't know the numbers, I read the other day that... For streaming, from streaming, what the WGA is asking for is one half of 1% that the studios make on streaming. Mm. That's what they want, one half of 1%. SAG-AFTRA is asking for 2%. So because these aren't big asks. These are not big asks. Certainly not relative to like and, what the bottom line looks like. And, and right, what the bottom yeah. line looks like. And when we laid those numbers out, they, they called us unreasonable, got up and walked away. All right. And now, it's not just actors and writers who are affected by this strike. Crew members vastly outnumber the talent on any given production set. And with the stoppage of production, many of them are left without work. Daryl Wilson is the president of Chapter 46 of the International Allegiance of Theatrical yeah. Stage Employees, or IATSE. Daryl, thanks for being with us. Thanks for the invitation. Really appreciate it. So how is the strike impacting members of IATSE? Well you're faced with simply a work stoppage. Um, last summer, there were eight shows. Last summer at this time, there were eight shows here in Tennessee, two, uh, one in Knoxville, one in Memphis, and then the, re the remainder were here in Nashville. And um, we really saw, folks of us in the industry, uh, we really saw that this was gonna be the moment that we were gonna start climbing you know, to have, again, in maybe a year, the same amount to set a standard, maybe a couple more, and really start rolling. So you were hoping that there was going to be some sort of l standard, again, of work that you could count on. And now we walked into this year, January finished a... um network television show that was in Memphis. So that was great for some of us who were able to carry that over into the new year. A few weeks after that, maybe a month or so, uh, an Amazon film that's going to be starring Nicole Kidman started up here in Nashville. So, you know, like we had hopes, you know, again, that we're just going to, you know, we're going to make it through the dead of winter into spring and summer, have more work. And then the writer strike happened. Mm. And then now the actors have walked out as well. How much do, are you concerned? Because, you know, as you said, Nashville is attempting to really bolster itself and establish a standard. But we have Atlanta four hours south of us, which is a hub for entertainment. A lot of studios are there. Are you concerned that this work stoppage is going to take interest away from Nashville and future production opportunities? Um, I'm hopeful that that will not be the case simply because... The, of the eight shows that occurred here last year, um, the, production, the, the, the production companies were all predominantly tied to the largest companies that we're talking about dealing with the AMPTP. You had Amazon, you had Comcast with NBC Universal, you had Paramount Plus. Um, I'm going to miss a couple, but it, I, I think that they know Apple Plus has been here. Um, they've, they have programming that, is, that has been done here. So I think they know what they have. It's just getting 
it to a level of reliability. All right. Now, all of you are members of unions. From what I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, there are non-union productions that are still happening. Right, gentlemen? Oh, yeah, yes. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I actually have a question about the, the IATSE part of this. I was thinking, like we were talking earlier before we came in here, um, SAG-AFTRA has been granting these interim agreements to ind independent productions and producers, right, that can agree to these terms, which is proving that, one, it is possible to agree to these terms. And mm -hmm. if a smaller entity with not a lot of money can agree to this, why can't you know these massive corporations agree to this? I'm curious, actually, Daryl, I was thinking about this, like, can IATSE members, they can still work on all of those independent productions, right, that are, you know, not with a struck company? Um, that is chiefly how we are trying to string it together. But then there's a whole other aspect of what folks here on this side of the table would necessarily call day work, commercials, mm -hmm. music videos, Because that's whatever. not struck. Those, that, that is None not of that, struck. right. None of that is... What we're talking about is major production, gotcha. television and motion pictures. Mm -hmm. um, there are still certain avenues uh, for work, but it is relying more and more on non-union work. What are the differences in working conditions for a non-union job versus a union job, Daryl? Um, the, the primary difference is the fact that there's a written contract. And that the uh, in, and and that the workers have a say in how the day can be structured, how long the day can be, uh, breaks, the fact that people are getting paid a scale rather than whatever someone wants to offer. So I mean, it's 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 really it's having the contract. Mm. Now we have a clip from Fran Drescher. She is SAG AFTRA's current president. She was speaking to the press last month. The eyes of the world, and particularly the eyes of labor, are upon us. What happens here is important because what's happening to us is happening across all fields of labor by means of when employers make Wall Street and greed their priority, and they forget about the essential contributors that make the machine run. We have a problem. You know, Fran's point about this is type of problems existing for workers in all fields is pretty, pretty interesting. Now, you might, Mike, what would you say to someone who doesn't feel like actors and writers' current struggles are in, super important? This... This struggle that we're happening, having right now, the strike is, is not about the stars. The stars all make their own deals. They work above scale. This is about the journeyman actor, the guy you see and you recognize are the ones you don't recognize that are playing the cop, the bartender, the whatever they may work a week or even just one day on this. That's what this strike is about. This is about the average meat and potatoes people that, that you don't know, that ones that struggle to make $26,000 a year to earn their insurance. And we've had a lot of our members who were earning insurance three years ago who aren't doing it now, and that's not acceptable to us. Now, now, Rod, you know, tell me what's your assessment of the negotiations at this point? I only have a couple minutes left. 
Sure. I mean, I, I'm not privy to any of it, of course. I'm just encouraged that um, the AMPTP, who should drop the P because they actually don't know how to produce anything, um, had the courage to ask to get back to the, nego the negotiating table. I do want to say about real quickly about this this idea that, you know, everyone's got money and they maybe, you know, we're not does so-and-so need more money? Does so-and-so need to get paid more? And I think that like largely in the film business, most people are scraping by. Most people have side hustles. Most people drive Uber. Most people do anything they can to make ends meet. And the, the, you've got these people, right, who have committed their entire life to creating the thing that brings you a lot of joy. At least a writer does. You know, you've got a small membership that creates all of the television and film that you watch. It's about 11,000 members, I think, who voted to strike. Like these, these people do want to make a living. At the same time, there are people outside of the industry who go, well, you know, you shouldn't be so lucky as to have a guaranteed job all the time. Look at any other industry. There's a chance they could get laid off and they can't, cut, they, they can't make ends meet either. So I, I do understand it. Um, it, but it is relative to the people that have like gone all in on this. They are being marginalized and they're being taken advantage of. And why not ask for fair protections and, uh, you know, uh, safety for them in the same way you would want that for anybody else who exists out there who is a laborer, who is creating something of value and making a contribution to the world and to someone's life. I mean, simply because it's entertainment doesn't mean it's not important. Imagine a world without movies, television. I mean, it, it's not the ultimate thing, but it is it is a, a big part of our culture. It makes a major contribution. And, you know, people don't want to be taken advantage of just like a hotel worker shouldn't be taken advantage of. Just like someone who works, uh, you know, below the line on a production shouldn't be taken advantage of. Rod Blackhurst is a writer and the owner of Witchcraft Production Company. And Daryl Wilson is the president of IATSE Local 492. Thanks to you both for being with us today. And good luck to you, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having us. Mike Montgomery will stick with us through the break. When we come back, we'll learn about what's at stake for Nashville creatives in the film and TV scenes. And you can join the conversation by tweeting us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Colona, and this is Nashville. The film and TV industry employs millions of people, and not one person can get the job of producing a television show or film done alone. Before the break, we heard about why writers and actors are on strike. We also learned about how the strikes are affecting the crew who work on film and television projects. Now let's explore what's at stake for local creatives and how the strike could impact the TV and film industry here in Nashville. For that, I'd like to introduce my next guest. Julie Lighty is a local production coordinator and production supervisor. Julie, thanks for being here. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, so folks who don't know, for, for folks who don't know, can you briefly explain what a production coordinator and production supervisor does? Essentially, we're managerial and we coordinate equipment, crew hires, make sure everyone knows exactly what they're doing on an any given day basis. Um, and essentially, we put out all theoretical and sometimes actual fires. <laughs> uh -huh. so, so essentially, when you're not on the set doing work, but you're in the production office, right? As a coordinator, you're in the production office. As a supervisor, you're in both. You're in both. We have to be on set talking to, to, to department heads, asking them, you know, what's going on in the day? What struggles are you having? How can I help? How can I make things better? Can't do that from an office. Mm -hmm. But we do also go back to the office because then we have to coordinate with vendors, with the coordinating team, 
office PAs, that kind of thing. There's a lot of long hours? Yes. We're talking 16, 18 hours a lot of days. And for and productions can go two, three months. Sometimes even longer, six months for television. Wow, that's a lot of hard work. You know, I have a little bit of personal experience working on te television film projects from being in front of the camera, on the crew, to being in the production office. And, you know, there was a mantra, always have your next job lined up before the production is over. What, before the strike, what was your frequency of work in Nashville? In Nashville, it was hit or miss. Um, like kind of Daryl said before, we had a lot of productions happening last year, so that was a giant influx. Um, in previous years, you know, we might have anywhere between three to five productions, sometimes even less than that. It just depends. Um, in the 90s, we were, we were hopping a lot more as a state, and Bob Rains has done a lot of great work with the state of Tennessee to bring more productions in. Um, and last year, like, you know, again, like Daryl said, we were finally getting to the point of, now we can actually build a hub here. Now we can actually train crew. And now we're seeing more of a fulfillment of our industry. All right. Now my next guest can offer his assessment on the future of film and TV in Nashville. Bob Rains is the executive director of the Tennessee Entertainment Commission. Bob, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks for having me. Excited so, to be here. So, you know, before I get to the, your thoughts about the strike and the future of Nashville, tell us, everybody, tell us what the Tennessee Entertainment Commission does. Yeah, absolutely. So um, we are a division of uh, the Tennessee Tennessee Economic Community Development, and sort of my primary job is to um, bring high-quality job opportunities to our creatives across the state of Tennessee. So, I mean, I work in every single um, market here in the state, and um, sort of our primary responsibilities are we deal with incentives, of course, and that's sort of the primary thing that we deal in. Um, we work, we have a workforce directory, which um, houses about 2,500 people from across the state of Tennessee. So if you're looking for people to work in the industry, you can go to this directory. Uh, we also have a marketing um, campaign where, where we try to sort of market our state as a viable marketplace to bring all sorts of productions, you know, to, you know, to, I mean, it could be from commercials, music videos videos, motion picture, television, you know, everything. So essentially, if Netflix were to say, hey, we want to build a studio in Nashville, your office would be part of negotiating those terms. Yeah, I could be a part of that conversation. Okay, so, you know, how many people work in the film and television industry are, are based around Nashville? So around Nashville, Nashville is actually the hub of, of the state. Um, so about 95% of our industry as far as people working in it and our production services are are here in the state um i would say maybe you know the numbers i've seen we could see around you know 2000 maybe a little over 2000 mm -hmm. um here what's in the, the in the middle in the middle tennessee i'm curious area. i'm curious about the economic impact of television films and projects here like how much does it add to the state's economy so luckily for you, I have all these numbers here in front of me, and I can awesome. tell you exactly right. what that is. So, Fantastic. Um, you know, typically we're going to put out $424 million in what we call just sort of gross domestic, domestic product here. So that's going to be, you know, people's wages, you know, what business services they're going out. So that's $424 million. About $268 million of that are, are earnings that go to our Tennesseans um, in the industry just for the motion picture video production. Um and so, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's, it's pretty significant. You know, Mike Montgomery with SAG-AFTRA is still with us. Mike, thanks for again for, for being here. Are you, are you worried that creative folks out here because of these strikes are going to go ahead and move on to different careers? No, not really, because you don't do this. You become an actor because you have to become an actor. Mm. And it's just something that 
drives you, and that's why you write. That's why writers write. That's why actors act. And they they may move on to something temporarily and get a better side hustle, but you know when this starts back up again, they're going to they're going to file back in. Now you know the cost of living in Tennessee and Nashville really going up. We've seen musicians move away because Absolutely. of cost. Do you think actors are going to do the same? Go to other maybe different parts of the state or even leave the state? Uh, no, I, I think they will live surrounding within driving distance because this is where the hub is and this is where the movies will work from. Mm. And, you know, it, it, people say, yeah, you know, a lot of things are shot rurally, and and they are, but many of those will be shot in the surrounding counties, you know, when they move out, And but the production hubs will remain here, unless, of course, it's somewhere where they want to go sit down in the Great Smoky Mountains. Mm-hmm. And now, Julie, yeah. I, I saw you nodding your head when Mike was talking. Have you ever considered moving because of the limited work? Oh, definitely not. I was born and raised in Tennessee, and I'm never going anywhere. Okay. <laughs> um, but he, everything that he was saying is spot on. I don't think people are going to leave this area. There's something about being in Tennessee that people are coming home. They'll go to L.A., they'll work for 10 years, they'll come back, though, because Tennessee is their home. Mm-hmm. We see that in all and the out. time. Yeah. And, and, you know, our local here, yeah, well, I know we're talking about Nashville, but our Nashville local, we also cover Kentucky and Muscle Shoals, Alabama, okay. and Muscle Shoals because of the music studios, because half of our members here are singers and recording artists in SAG-AFTRA, so, and that still goes on. So we got half the people who are the old school triple threat. You can sing, dance, and act. Well, you know, the way the way things have gone in the last 10 years, it looks like uh, every singer wants to act and every actor wants to sing. Hey, <laughs> I'm down for it as long as it's good entertainment. Now, now, Bob, tell us, how are adjacent industries being impacted by the strike? Well, I think every state around us, um, if you're talking about other states around us being impacted. States or, or industries, like industries within Nashville, I'm sure the hotel industry is being affected pretty strenuously. Yeah, I mean, you know, the thing with Nashville is that uh, the, the tourism industry here is very strong. So um, it's not really that kind of impact, I think, you know, that, that we see as far as on, on other businesses. Now, within the, as far as general and sort of widespread, but you know, when you're talking about the businesses that really service the film and television, I mean, absolutely. I mean, there's some strain there. So what are we looking at for the future of television and film here? Is the potential that we showed before the strikes, is that gone forever? No, absolutely not. Um, you know, the thing is, you know, I think Daryl was talking about this in your last segment. You know, last year in 2022, we came out of the pandemic. We brought in just through through my through through the office, um, through, through the Entertainment Commission, we had about 27 independent feature films, you know, happening in in. 2022, which, and that was a lot for us with a TV series, we had a major feature and we had a lot of independent films. I mean, most of the things were independent films. I think our economic output last year was around $325 million. And that's a lot, you know, for, you know, for, for our marketplace here. And going into this year, when I was looking at setting up what my recruitment pipeline looked like, because I see, I see product, you know, probably six months before it comes into the state. And so as I'm lining up the pipeline, I probably saw about the same coming into this year um, as we were leaving the Amazon project and we were going into um, the second quarter. We, I, I already had maybe two or three other pretty big features going, you know, that were going to happen until, you know, the strike. And so, um, 
it's it's um, I, and no no doubt it, that you know the conversations we're having right now are going to lead to next year whenever this sort of we get we get over this that is going to come back very very strong very fast. Now you know we talked to Carla Cristina Contreras, who is the president elect of Nashville mm -hmm. SAG after about what it was like being on the National Negotiating Committee, and we you know we heard from her that you know she's 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 really trying to attempt to bring something, a, a sort of result going on here. And, you know, we're reminded that SAG still isn't back at the table with AMPTP. Mike, what do you feel needs to change to make that happen? Well, SAG is actually at the table. We never left. The AMPTP walked away and refused to come back. So they, we're, we're waiting on them. Waiting on them. We are, that's, that's what we're doing right now. And anytime they want to talk, we're willing to talk the same thing with the writers. When they went back in, you know, the writers are currently talking because the AMPTP came back to the table. Mm -hmm. The writers were always there, always waiting, always willing to talk. Now you said something, last question for you. You know, you said something about actors do it because they have to act. There's just calling. Yeah. Writers are have a calling. I talked to my sister, well-known actress. She's She's been doing this since she was nine years old. Mm -hmm. So for over 40 years. And she's really bummed out about this happening again. She says it was a, it's a lack of respect shown from the studios to these people who work so hard and have dedicated themselves to this craft. What do you want our listeners to know about the dedication that you and your peers put into this work and how this situation is unfolding? Well, to us, we are trying to bring something to people who want to watch it that can mean something to them in their lives. You know, you watch it because it makes you laugh. If you need a release, you watch it because if you like law and order, because you like a mystery and you like to watch this unfold. Uh, things that, that make you sad and make you cry, like on the Hallmark Channel, you know, people love to watch Christmas movies that make them tear up and do things like that. That's what actors want, that we want to, and writers want to make people feel something. We want to take them out of their everyday life and make them feel something. And what has happened in the last few years, what we do for the public has just become nothing but content to the people who sell it. They don't care whether it makes anyone feel anything. They only care about how much money they can make off of it and off of us. I want to thank my guests so much for this conversation. Production coordinator and supervisor Julie Lighty, Bob Rains with the Tennessee Entertainment Commission, and Mike Montgomery with local SAG-AFTRA. Thank you all for being with us. Really appreciate it. And thanks to you for tuning in this hour. This is Nashville. It's a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Today's episode was produced by Elizabeth Burton. Our senior producer is Steve Harouche. Michaela Elias is our technical director. The masterminds behind our theme music are Lorange and Namir Blade. You can listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at thisisnashville, find us on Instagram, and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.